And almost everyone can find a connection that way and build empathy for our multilingual learners. And often I'll have a couple of students who either were MLLs themselves or have family members who don't speak English as an L1. And we learn so much from them and their experiences. And from that sense of connection, then comes the motivation to want to be a great teacher for MLLs. And once my students have that, then they're motivated to gain the skills. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What are some steps that educators can take now to build positive relationships with students and their families this school year? What experiences can educators pull from to build empathy and appreciation for multilingual students and their families? How might we go beyond language so we can also build an understanding of diverse cultures, and how might that investment play out in interactions with families? We discuss these questions and much more with Rosalie Metro, an assistant teaching professor in the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Missouri, Columbia. We learned about Rosalie's work through an article in Edweek titled, I Thought I Understood Parents of Language Learners, Then I Became One. The article was really interesting to me because it really blended Rosalie's professional life with her personal life, bringing in, I think, a real authentic meaning to the story. We get into that article and lots of different pieces of it in our interview today. In terms of her professional experience, Rosalie Metro has taught social studies at the high school level and currently teaches TESOL classes for pre-service teachers as well as supervising student interns. She's the author of two books, Teaching U.S. History Thematically, Document-Based Lessons for the Secondary Classroom, and Teaching World History Thematically, Essential Questions and Document-Based Lessons to Connect Past and Present, both published by Teachers College Press. She has also been busy researching Burma, Myanmar's education system, and working with refugees from that country since 2001, and does Burmese language interpreting for her local school district. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Rosalie Metro. Rosalie Metro, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Glad to be here, Steve. Yeah, so I, I want to first mention that I, I read about your work um, through an article in Edweek, and it was a great article as somebody who's worked with multilingual learners myself, obviously, and as somebody who has children and as somebody who has traveled, um, sort of uh, giving people a preview of the article, it really brought all of those pieces together. Um, and the approach that you took, those both professional and personal really resonated with me. And I hope it resonates with others as well. So to get us started, I don't really do this too often, but I think it's good context. Could you talk to us a little bit about that article um, and what inspired you to write it? And then we'll get into details later. Sure. So I teach a TESOL course for pre-service teachers, and we spend time talking about building relationships with the families of multilingual learners. And so I thought I had a pretty good handle on best practices for how to do that, especially since I've worked as a Burmese language interpreter for the school district I'm in um, for many years. And so I've observed a lot of family school interactions. But in 2009, my husband got a six months research fellowship in Berlin. And we put our two kids who were then four and seven into public schools there. Neither of them spoke German. Um, and that gave me a really different perspective on what MLL families in the US go through. Um, 
because in many ways, I really had it easy. I'd lived in Germany before. I could speak some German. And my kids' teachers were experienced working with kids who didn't speak German as an L1. But nonetheless, it was really hard to send my babies to school every day, knowing that they really didn't understand much of what people were saying around them. Um, I think my son had an easier time. He was in preschool, so the cognitive demands on him were pretty low. Um, you know, he basically played soccer and Legos. Um, but my daughter was in second grade, and the kids around her were reading and writing, and she really felt pressure to catch up. And so it was really hard for her socially at first. She didn't know basic phrases like, can I play? Um, and after a few months, she caught up, she was doing awesome. But that experience really emphasized for me a couple of points. And the first is the importance of meeting families and orienting them to the school before the first day, um, and then keeping that communication strong. And also that families may be just as concerned with social development as academic development. And I've observed this a lot, but I never totally understood why. And through having this experience myself, I realized that our first priority was really just that our daughter felt safe and welcomed because that was the key to any language learning she was gonna do after that. Um, so overall, the experience was just really eye-opening for me and I wanted to share my insights with others in the TESOL community. I'm so glad you did. And thank you for, for sharing that. It was a really nice summary of the whole experience that you, I feel like you probably could have taken the whole time we have to just talk about that. So I appreciate your brevity. We'll get into details afterwards. Um, but, you know, a couple things that resonated with me that, that you just said, one is, you know, the idea of not only meeting families before school starts, but continuing that relationship as the school year goes along. Um, so important. And the other piece, you know, that social versus academic. And now uh, I think more than ever, the idea of establishing strong relationships with students and their families, given what we've just been through over the last year, um, is even more, uh, I'm not gonna say it's more powerful because it's always been powerful and important, but perhaps it's more in the spotlight now, which is probably a good thing um, and and might mean that the sort of work that you're doing and the, and the ideas that you came across having had this experience um, might even be sort of more... Uh, um, better understood by people, you know, given what's been, what's been happening. So a couple, a couple connections there that I, that I thought were interesting. Yeah, um, I hope so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's like the, one of the silver linings. I feel like I talk about all the time with COVID and school closures is, is the importance of social. And, you know, I have four children of my own and we're seeing the same thing, you know, that you just realize that, you know, when the kids are out of school and their, their routines are off, Obviously, it's very different when you're a multilingual learner or you're going to a different country, but even Stephen in just a normal quote unquote situation, um, it, that that social emotional piece is so, so important. For sure. Okay. So let's zoom out a little bit. And while I have you here, I want to make sure we talk a little bit about teacher preparation because it's something we've talked a lot about. Um, you've been at Mizzou since 2017, I think, right? Yep. And during that time, teachers have been required to take a TESOL class that you teach, which I think is great uh, for, for certification in the state of Missouri. Um, but that hasn't always been the case there. And in some places, it's still not the case, to my knowledge. So my question for you is, given that you've been involved in this work for a long time, how has the requi this requirement impacted teacher pre preparation to work with multilingual learners? Um, and what do you think still needs to be done? So I think the requirement is really positive. Um, all of my students are gonna have an MLL at some point in their career and they really need to be prepared. 
And I know that because they bring back stories from the classrooms that they're observing in their field sites where teachers are doing their best with MLLs, but really not having the training to serve those students and families. And so I think that my students will be more prepared than the teachers that are out there now, and also much more prepared than I felt when I started teaching. Um, I think what I'd like to see in the future is continuing professional development for classroom teachers. So I give them knowledge about what to do, but it's not till they get into the classroom that and start applying it um, that they're going to really have questions come up that they need answers to. Um, and I'd love to see their districts supporting them and continuing to learn. So, for example, we have this awesome grant funded program here in Missouri called CTEL, Strengthening Equity and Effectiveness for Teachers of English Learners, which was spearheaded by my colleague at Mizzou, Lisa Dorner, and others from the University of Missouri system. And it offers PD on these topics. So I would love to see more than that, more of that. Um, and another thing is support for teachers in rural areas that may not have many MLLs. So also in Missouri, we have the Migrant English Language Learners Program where specialists actually go out throughout the state and deliver support in districts that may not have even one ESOL certified teacher. Um, and so I think that's important too, because even if there's just a handful of MLLs in a school, they really deserve the best services. Yeah, a lot of really great points there. Um, you know, the idea you mentioned PD, and not to just kind of hit on one piece that you've talked about, because I think I think if you kind of miss some of that, go back thirty seconds or a minute and listen, because I think everything you said was really important. But the PD piece is another thing, a connection that I'll make to what's happened. You know, again over the past year, and and PD being offered in different ways, perhaps more convenient, perhaps even more effective. I've heard from people um, and more accessible, which is maybe the most important thing. I've heard that. Um, that teachers, particularly content teachers who are serving multilingual learners, uh, are now in many districts uh, more able, more willing, and more excited to choose, and that's the key word, choice, right? To choose courses that uh, are directed toward them learning about how to deal with multilingual learners. And to add to that, I've heard that those teachers are, are feeling that, and no surprise to us, I don't think, or to anybody who's listening, but that those teachers are realizing that those strategies that they're using to support multilingual learners are good for everyone. Is that something you're seeing as well now? Do you make that connection? Definitely. Um, and I think that teaching this course has really influenced the way I teach in my classroom, even though most of my students are not multilingual learners, um, just offering support and scaffolding, offering options and choices, um, giving them examples of completed work, you know, always modeling the genre when I'm asking them to do a piece of writing. That is stuff that's helpful, even for my college students. Um, and so I think from experiencing that, they can see how it would be really valuable to their elementary or high school students, whether they're MLLs or not. Yeah. That's actually a nice transition into my next question. Um, you've, I, I in talking with you, you've said that many of your students in your teacher preparation program haven't had much experience with multilingual learners, or even in some cases, diversity. And I, that was kind of my, the case with me when I was in college as well. Um, so how do you go about creating experiences that will help them build empathy, excitement, appreciation, because I'll try to look at the positive, um, for working with these students um, and the families that you know they're eventually going to serve, then they really don't have any experience with that. How do you go about doing that? 
Yeah. Um, so most of my students are white monolingual folks, and many of them come from rural areas or suburbs where they had little contact with MLLs, even if they were around somewhere. And so many of them come in saying, I don't know anything about these students. How can I be a good teacher for them? And so my first job is to help them connect their life experiences with those of multilingual learners. So I ask them to share about a time they've studied a language or visited a place where they didn't speak the primary language, or even to think back on people in their own family, like grandparents or great grandparents who may have immigrated to the US and the struggles that they might have faced. And almost everyone can find a connection that way and build empathy for our multilingual learners. And often I'll have a couple of students who either were MLLs themselves or have family members who don't speak English as an L1. And we learn so much from them and their experiences. And from that sense of connection, then comes the motivation to want to be a great teacher for MLLs. And once my students have that, then they're motivated to gain the skills. Yeah. And that's, you know, we I feel like, and I've said this a lot of times before, I'm sure anybody who listens regularly will know what I'm about to say, but it's like this asset-based approach, right? It's another example of it. It, it, That that's an expression that we hear too often, but we don't hear examples of it. Um, Here you're talking about students who don't necessarily have a lot of experience with multilingual learners or diversity for that matter. Um, Once we get them to sort of think about that experience and make connections of their own, I mean, I'm thinking about, um, you know, my grandparents who emigrated from Greece and, you know, the pride in the stories that we hear that my grandfather came here with 50 cents in his pocket and established a business and struggled, but made it through, you know, I mean, the tenacity and the grit that that requires, um, similar to, to the, to the, 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 you know, the, the struggles and the, um, and the triumphs that a lot of the English learners or multilingual learners that we're working with now, um, have different in many ways for, for sure, but, but similarities and just bringing that to the forefront, I think gives I mean, for me, at least, it gives me sort of a sense of pride in working with those students and taking advantage of those positive characteristics they bring to all of our classrooms. Yeah, definitely. All right. So you mentioned getting kind of getting back to family engagement here. Um, you, earlier when we were talking, you mentioned that, you know, you didn't really you didn't really understand exactly what it meant until you were in the situation yourself with having your own children. Um, in a school where they were trying to learn English and tried to sort of fit in culturally and socially as well. So to, to what extent is family engagement woven into teacher uh, preparation curriculum and specifically the one that you're involved in? Um, and, and as, and I'm just, uh, t- uh, talking specifically about how it pertains to families of, of multilingual learners. Yeah, I do a lot with that topic, partly because of my experience as an interpreter and partly because of this experience um, I've had living overseas also. And so I've observed how communication can really go awry between families and schools. And when I ask my students um, about their hopes and fears for interacting with MLL families. A fear is always, what if I offend something, someone? Mm -hmm. What if I say the wrong thing? And I always tell them, that's not an if, it's a when. At some point in your career, that will happen. Cross-cultural communication is hard, but the important thing is what you do next. Do you just give up or can you bounce back from that? And so I lay out a process for them to use in tough situations. And it starts with, 
noticing their immediate reactions and feelings because some teachers tend to skip over that and then they act out of those feelings without realizing it. And next, questioning their biases and assumptions. So maybe my immediate reaction was to be angry when the parent didn't return my phone calls. But then when I start to question my assumptions, did they even understand the messages I was leaving? Do they feel confident enough with their English to call me back? Is that an appropriate thing for someone to do in their culture? So examining that stuff and then using some resources and tools to address the situation with the family, whether that's working with other staff in the district, interpreters, local organizations that work with immigrants or refugees, apps like Talking Points, there's so many things we can find to facilitate that communication. And then finally, having them reflect back on what they learned from that situation and what they might do differently going forward. So I have my students go through those steps um, with different hypothetical scenarios and they really enjoy it and they do great with it. It builds their confidence that they can handle obstacles that might come up in their relationships with MLL families. Yeah, thank you for laying out that process. And, and again, there's a couple sort of pieces and connections there having done so many of these interviews over time. Um, one of the most I mean, they're all memorable, but one of the most interesting for me personally interviews that I did was with a woman by the name of Megan Fucciarelli, who does a lot of anti-bias training and was a school administrator and was uh, also worked with, with multilingual learners. And boy, that's incredibly powerful, looking at yourself in the mirror and understanding what your bias is. And you mentioned some of the things that sort of may have prevented that, that sample parent from calling back. And there are many. And the last one that you mentioned is the one that I hear more often. Is it even is it even appropriate in that culture for a person to, to interact with the school? I mean, it may seem completely out of place and in many places uh, it, it is. You also mentioned talking points. I had the pleasure of speaking with TJ Lim, who's their founder and CEO a, few, a couple of years ago, actually great tool. They're doing wonderful work as well. And there are a lot of other tools like that as well to kind of facilitate the communication. And I've seen just with, especially with newer teachers or teachers who haven't worked with multilingual learners, having those tools in their back pocket to use obviously creates um, more confidence, which is great. And then the idea of reflection as well, like reflecting on your experiences and thinking about it. And that's so crucial as we know, um, just in teaching in general. Um, but that's great. Well, I mean, I think that's a great, we'll try to include that, those steps in the, um, in the blog post that accompanies this, because I think that those are some great action items um, that I really appreciate. Okay. So you, you mentioned, again, another thing you mentioned earlier that I want to get to as well is um, you have some experience working with Burmese refugees as an interpreter, which I think is amazing. Um, what did that experience teach you about the value of having someone who understands both the language and the culture of, um, of the students the teachers are, are working with? And what can educators do? This is the harder question. What can educators do if they don't have access to those kinds of human resources? Yeah. So um, I guess I would want to start with a couple of assumptions that sometimes come up um, when, when working with families of multilingual learners. And one of them is the idea that some cultures don't value education. And this is something that um, has come up a lot in my teaching and also in my interpreting work. And I always say, all cultures value education. They just define it and interpret it differently. And um, 
you know, so we say we value education in the U.S., but we fund education through inequitable property taxes. Um, people show they value education in Finland by not having kids start school till they're seven. People show they value education in Papua New Guinea by teaching kids to fish and grow food or, you know, in South Korea by having kids study long hours. And so education doesn't equal school and school can look many different ways. So if a family isn't responding um, well to teachers' overtures, it may be because they have very different expectations. And that's something that I've seen in working with Burmese families. So for example, in Burma, Burmese educational cultures, it's really common for kids to spend long hours um, memorizing their textbooks every night. And parents are kind of confused when that's not happening. Um, and they might even, they've even said things like, why is my student so lazy? Like they're not doing any homework. And so as an interpreter, I don't just translate that sentence and then leave the teachers to kind of puzzle over it. I'm like, I add a little context, right? Um, just trying to explain that this is actually a way that parents are showing they value education. Um, by expecting students to do more homework. Um, and I'm actually working on an article about this, these interactions I've had with families and the assumptions that Burmese families are bringing to our US school system and how they're often really misunderstood um, by teachers. And so I think that it can be hard when, you know, say you're just trying to get through a parent-teacher conference using Google Translate, which of course is not recommended, but sometimes it happens, then you don't have that person there to kind of um, explicate the ideas behind it. And I know that that can be really challenging. So you mentioned like, what can educators do if they don't have access? Um, perhaps trying to do a little research about that culture and in particular, what schools are like. Um, you know, if you can even find on YouTube a video of a school um, in China or Burma or Nigeria or wherever your student's coming from, it might give a little insight into the context that that family is coming from and the expectations they might have. YouTube, anything from fixing your dishwasher to finding out what a school looks like in Burma. That's right. <laughs> Pretty incredible, isn't it? No, but honestly, I mean, what a great idea just for that, just for that kind of primer. Um, why not? Uh, I guess you have to be careful, but but it, but it makes sense. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot. That the the second question that I asked you is almost like an un, unfair question. What you know, what can schools do if they don't have access to these resources? Because it's hard. We've we've talked to a few people with some pretty novel ideas about that. You know, with community liaisons, um, leveraging people in the community who actually want to do more than just sort of sort of. Um, you know, be involved with the school passively, they want to actually do something about it. So there's a lot of different, um, different ways to do it that I've, that I've heard about. And they can actually, sometimes they can be the best resources to show uh, others what school and what the culture just looks like in those, in those different places. So um, that's great. But, but the content, like you, the idea of interpreting, not just as interpreting the language, but inter but giving it context and adding that additional layer. Um, so, so valuable, so incredibly valuable and whatever we can do to do that, um, is always, uh, always important. Um, okay. So kind of wrapping up a little bit here, I'm, I'm trying to think about, um, sort of takeaways here. So I'm going to ask you specifically, what are two or three things that are 
absolutely essential in your mind to understand uh, when working with families of multilingual learners? And how would you go about teaching them to future and current teachers as well? You mentioned the PD element, the ongoing piece is so important as well. So I don't want to just limit it to like new teachers here. This is everyone. Yeah. So one is the idea that I just mentioned in connection with my work with Burmese families, and that's that all cultures value education. So they may not value the education that U.S. schools are offering them, but they value it in some way. Um, I think that that is truly a universal and it's our job as teachers to find out like what are the family's goals for their child? What do they want the education to look like? And if that's very different from what a school is offering, how can we meet in the middle and offer them a little more of what's meaningful and familiar to them? For instance, with the homework issue, I had some teachers say, okay, well, you know, I can give your child some extra worksheets to take home on the weekend. And it enabled the child to sort of meet both home and school expectations. And for the, for the family to just feel more comfortable and satisfied with what was being offered. So I think responding to families' expectations is important. And then the second thing would be really taking a strengths-based approach, which you mentioned earlier, Steve, and valuing the funds of knowledge that multilingual learners and their families bring. So, so often teachers bring a deficit mindset about what these families lack, whether that's English proficiency, economic stability, or formal education. Um, and parents can even bring that deficit mindset about themselves, which is one of the saddest things and I think is really a failure of our education system when a parent says, well, I can't speak English, I can't help my child. And that means that the school hasn't conveyed to them that one of the most amazing things they can do for their child is to maintain their first language and their multilingual capabilities. Great point. Um, because these families bring so much, the will to survive and thrive, and actually very diverse educational and professional backgrounds. You know, they may have been doctors and lawyers and journalists in their home countries. Um, and if they're not able to do that in the U.S. because they don't have the English proficiency yet, they still bring so much knowledge of the world and, um, and life. Um, so I think it's important not to assume not to make assumptions about what our MLL families can and can't do, but to really find out and give them the, the chance to show their strengths and be part of their kids' education in whatever way um, makes sense to them. Yeah, I love it. Great points. And you know, one of the things that, that I was thinking about as you were talking about um, understanding what families want out of in for for their students, you know, for their children, their educations. One thing that's always stuck with me is um, something that, uh, and I mentioned her quite a bit, Karen Mapp from the Harvard Graduate School of Education has done a, a lot of work on family engagement. Um, I, I worked with her a little bit on, on a, an online course she was building about six years ago on family engagement. And one of the things that is emphasized, a very simple question that you can ask, but a very powerful question is, what are your hopes and dreams for your children? I mean, there's everybody has those, no matter where you're from or what your context is. And understanding that I think uh, is so crucial. And I would imagine that the answers are going to be similar, you know, in some way. So it kind of creates, it, it, it allows you to understand where the families are coming from, but also I think in some ways probably instills a sense of comfort in that, okay, 
like we really all kind of want our children to be healthy, happy, and and live, you know, uh, uh, a lifestyle where they can support their own children or, or you know achieve their own goals. So I thought that was really powerful. For sure. Um, yeah. So before I ask you uh, a couple questions about book recommendations and how people can get in touch with you, I I have to say that. Um, you know, it, this happens all the time. I, I was I was struck by, like I said at the beginning, the sort of perspective that your article took. You don't often see the personal and the professional in situations like these, which I really loved. But the other thing was the importance of relationship building. That's like the theme of this year. Um, I feel like it's it's always it comes up in every conversation I have, and it's relationship building with both students and their families. So as we start off a new school year. Um, what are some steps that you think educators can take right now to assure that they are establishing um, those those positive relationships and setting themselves up to nurture them as the school year goes on? Yeah, I think first making contact and then figuring out how to keep it going. So home visit or a meeting at the school or in some other location that's comfortable for everybody with an interpreter if needed Um, even before the school year begins, um, can help start that process because you can learn about the family's background, like you were just saying, their goals for their students, what are their hopes and dreams, how they want to be involved. You know, it may not be the typical ways that are offered in U.S. schools, like PTA, it may be something else, Um, and figuring out how you can support that as a teacher. And then at that meeting, making a plan for the future, So I created a family contact form that I share with my students that asks about communication preferences. Um, Who are the adults at home that teachers should contact? And we don't want to assume that that's mom and dad. Multilingual families may have various structures, sometimes older siblings or relatives, maybe primary contact people. What's the best way to get in touch with them? Email, WhatsApp, phone, what's the best time to call, you know, do they work at night and don't want to be called um, at certain hours during the day? Do they need an interpreter? Um, Can they read and write English or do documents have to be sent home in other languages? Also, how can they contact you? And once you have those communication pathways in place, use them um, and build them up over time. And, you know, always start by trying to share victories and positive information so that if a time comes when we have to work through a difficult situation with a family, that relationship is already there. Great advice for for all students. I mean, this applies to all students, but particularly for multilingual students who are coming from different, different places. Um, I don't have much to add there. Again, if you're, if you're looking to kind of get that information again, go back about a minute and listen one more time. Um, okay, so as we wrap up here, uh, I ask everybody, as you may know, um, if there is a book or other resource that has um, inspired you or influenced you either personally or professionally. Sure. So one that I recommend to my students that I read recently is Helen Thorpe's The Newcomers. Um, oh, I had so I, I <laughs> love that you said that because I read it. It's an amazing book. And she was on the podcast, actually. And she was a great guest, super humble, great person. And the book's unbelievable. So I had to throw that out there, but I'll shut up and let you continue. Sorry. Go back and listen to that podcast episode. Definitely Read the book. Yeah. But it's like a journalistic account of an ESL classroom in Colorado, right around the time Trump was being elected. And I tell my students that it contains a lot of the content they'll learn in my class, but in the form of real life stories of immigrant and refugee high school students. Um, And it's just such an interesting exploration of the factors that influence second language acquisition from 
students' personalities and motivations to their family circumstances, um, what their L1s are, previous educational experiences. The stories are really powerful, and I think it helps to build empathy for these students in a time when immigration policy has become really politicized. Um, and the other one I want to mention quickly is Sydney Snyder and Diane Stair Fenner's Culturally Responsive Teaching for Multilingual Learners. I just got this in the mail, um, and I just looked through it yesterday, and there's so much great stuff in there, and it really is in line with a lot of what I was saying earlier about leading students through a process of kind of reflecting on their own assumptions and biases as they prepare to enter classrooms and work with multilingual learners. Also amazing people. I've coordinated a little bit with Diane um, over the years and they're great uh, people. I have not read that one, but I know that everything that that she does um, and that they both do are, are high quality. So great recommendations. Only thing I'll add about the newcomers is that, and I think you alluded to this, it, it the stories are so powerful that yes, you gain empathy, you gain an understanding, but like the stories are their stories, like they're that you get invested. It's like a you can read it certainly at the beach or like you, know, you can sit and, and and read it as an academic. It's really um, very well written. So I appreciate you mentioning both of those. Yeah. Um, so other than the article that you wrote for Education Week, which we'll link to, and you sort of teased another article, which I want to make sure that we share when it comes out. We'll get to that when it comes out, but. Um, how else can people learn about the work you're doing or or sort of learn more about you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore R underscore Metro, or you can check out my website at um, rosaliemetro.com. Those would be the main ways. Perfect. And we'll make sure we post those um, as well. And with that, Rose, it's really been a pleasure chatting with you. And I, I know I've said it a few times, but again, I have to commend you on that article that was just just written differently. I love it that there was your personal experience in there. Um, I hope we can do sort of whatever we can to amplify that because um, it led to this conversation, which I think was was uh, just as powerful as well. But um, highly recommend that article. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing a little bit of your experience and your expertise as well. You're welcome. And thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.